Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago supports founders and our local startup ecosystem with their flagship programs like the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine with the Illinois Science and Technology Coalition. Follow WBC on LinkedIn and Twitter to learn more on why Chicago thrives as a global destination for founders, innovators, and investors. Tommy, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. It's a true honor to have you here. We always love having another domer in the house, so this is just a double benefit for us. Thanks so much for having me. I think it's probably best if we kick things off by talking about your background, uh, you know, the founding of Fox and Robin. Would love to know, would love to know, you know, the origin story behind, behind the company. Yeah. So I grew up in upstate New York. I uh, went to a large public high school where I played soccer and tennis, went to Notre Dame, majored in finance. I was super involved in social entrepreneurship initiatives while at Notre Dame, which is how I got interested in the fashion space, which I can come back to post-college. At that point, I knew I actually wanted to start Fox and Robin, but I went into investment banking to, one, pay off student loans, get a stamp of credibility. Um, and just get some money in the bank account because I knew I'd have to fund the early days myself. Then post-City is when I started actually working on Fox and Robin, found the initial fashion designer, found the initial factory, started iterating on prototypes. Um, at the time, I was still on the side. I worked at Jet.com, which was acquired by Walmart, essentially Walmart.com, their e-commerce platform right now. And then my last corporate job, hopefully ever, it was uh, at Viacom in their corp dev group. Um, and then during the pandemic is when I quit and did Fox Robin full-time. So I've been doing it full-time for about a year and a half now. Did you know kind of, you know, leading into the pandemic or maybe early 2020, did you have designs on quitting and, and starting this up like really in earnest or did the, did the pandemic just give you like the best shot in the arm of like, all right, time to do this? Um, a little bit of both. So I always knew eventually I wanted to do it full-time. It was a matter of when, not if. The pandemic was, I don't want to say beneficial, but it the work from home environment, plus I didn't renew my New York City lease. So that was, you know, $2,000 a month that I was now not spending. I was living at home. I was basically not spending anything. That coincided kind of nicely with increased traction. Um, and also cap, you know, with the increased traction for, for Fox and Robin, I raised some additional capital. So Financially, I was able to make it work. And also keep in mind at the time, Viacom, I was in their M&A group. We were merging with CBS. So my day job was getting increasingly busy. Fox Rob was getting increasingly busy. Financially, it started to make sense where I could make it work. I'm not going to say I quit at the perfect time. It was a very ambiguous and difficult decision uh, to decide when to, was a, you know, the appropriate time to quit. It was not particularly obvious, um, but it kind of came to the point where I was like, okay, this might not be successful if I, you know, if even if I do go full-time, but it definitely won't be successful if I don't, you know, kind of go all in on it. 
you talked about wanting to start the company for it feels like um, quite a long time, at least going back to your college days or at least early post-college days. What was the, in your mind, like what was the mission behind the company? What did you, you know, why an apparel company? Like what did you want to put out in the world that was differentiated from, you know, other athleisure uh, options out there? Yeah, I, I certainly never viewed myself as someone as an unfashionable guy, someone that would start a clothing brand. <laughs> and as uh, you know, me from Notre Dame, you could probably attest to. Um, All right, don't tell yourself my, short. Yeah, it was okay. It was like middle of the road it was, fashion. It was, yeah. I'll, I'll give you that. the mill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mill Nothing special. Stuff. Yeah. Um, my initial interest in the fashion industry came from my exposure to the supply chain issues that exist within the fashion industry, both humanitarian and environmental. So that... I guess exposure came in fall of 2013 when the founders of New Solo pitched their investment, Shark Tank style, to a room full of impact investors. Uh, I was able to just, I was a fly in the wall. I was neither an entrepreneur or an investor, but they had uh, this incubator that they were a part of, had these investor days. I was a, sh- a fly in the wall in their pitch to investors. They were talking about the supply chain issues that exist within the global fashion industry. And then that started the rabbit hole of, you know, my, I asked my cousins who are fashion designers about these issues. I watched the True Cost documentary. I did a bunch of, you know, research, uh, you know, independently. So that was the start of my interest in the fashion industries. And then it kind of chronologically became, okay, I'm going to start a clothing brand that addresses these issue is fundamentally set up differently. We're a benefit corporation. So we're legally obligated to optimize for a triple bottom line as opposed to a you know, just a financial bottom line. Um, And so that was, you know, it kind of eventually became activewear after two reasons. One, I played sports growing up. That's what I know. It's what I love. And two, I think there's a a white space in the activewear market. Um, There's, we're one of three certified B Corps in the space. And a lot of the ESG focused brands are more in the streetwear casualware space. So it was a combination of what I knew and uh, you know, there's a white space. And then my North Star became creating an activewear brand that I holistically love in the absence of one that existed, which includes the more laid back or reverent personality in an otherwise pretty intense space. So you mentioned kind of these longstanding supply chain issues in the fashion industry that kind of woke you up to the potential for, for Fox and Robin um, you know, could you just briefly, I guess, you know, someone who's totally new to this, what would be kind of the main issues um, that that you learned about that really stoked your interest for this company? Yeah, the main issue is that a lot of brands don't know where their clothes are coming from. There's a lot of opaqueness in the supply chain of, you know, the global fashion industry. So if you take like a, you know, a Patagonia, who's in my mind, the gold standard in the fashion industry, they invest time, energy, and resources into ensuring they know where things are coming from. I won't call out any brand specifically, but that's in stark contrast to a lot of other brands that we currently buy from who, when they get in trouble for whether it's worker abuse or a factory collapses and it kills its workers, um, you know, there's been, and even 20% of the global cotton production is being done in a region in China where there's essentially modern days, you know, um, concentration camps. So these, when these issues are exposed in the media, those articles published naming brands are, that's not only news to consumers, it's news to the brands. They didn't even know their clothes or you know, materials were coming from those areas. Um, so it's, it's this generally 
ignorance is bliss mentality that's been, been pretty pervasive in the fashion industry for many decades, combined with the fact that a lot of our production, 97% of the clothes we wear is done overseas, largely in some of the poorest areas of the world. So it's a double-edged sword because there's been a lot of poverty alleviation because of the outsourcing of these jobs overseas, but it results in this desperation for these relatively higher paying jobs. So when you know a, a large Western brand says, hey, like we need this faster and cheaper, the factory's hands are tied behind their back. They're like, we can't afford to lose the business of this brand. We'll figure out a way. And often figuring out a way results in subcontracting portions of their order to sketchier, lower cost factories, unbeknownst to both the brand, you know, so the brands can pretend like they don't know where the stuff's being made. And oftentimes they don't, but it doesn't detract from the reality of a lot of these clothes that we're wearing are made in unethical factories. Um, so it's a, it's a relatively nuanced and involved issue. There's no silver bullet solution, but if I had to put it simply, um, it's really a matter of from day one, investing time, energy, and resources into knowing your supply chain. Um, you know, the former head of sustainability at Nike, the former head of sourcing at Lululemon, you, know, you talk to them, they're great people, they're trying to do the right thing, but they've inherited these incredibly massive and complex and opaque supply chains. And it's next to impossible to retroactively reverse engineer and figure out where things are coming from. Yeah, it seems like it's it's a classic example of like trying to completely, you know, do an about face on the Titanic uh, almost immediately. It's just yeah. such a yeah. th there's already such a, a machine that's been built, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. And it just seems like another example, kind of like some of the pitfalls of globalization definitely happens in the technology industry as well. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, we won't mention any specific brand names on the show, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but it's like the brands we all basically wear and know and have right. been sort of, uh, you know, have been you know accustomed to our entire lives. So so you came across this problem and the way sort of you decided to go out there and make an impact was was to start this clothing company and the goal being 100% clarity on every step of the supply chain paired with obviously, you know, a fashionable new athletic uh, line. Is that kind of the, the, I guess the, the proposition of the business, you know, summed up or you know, did I miss anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say there's two, two key elements, one on the ESG side of things. Uh, we first, yeah, exactly. We invest similar to Patagonia. We invest time, energy, and resources into knowing our own supply chain. And then the second step to that is we're incredibly transparent. So we're the first and only active or brand to disclose the actual wages of our factory workers. There's a lot of greenwashing that goes on, on in the industry. And a lot of companies say ambiguous phrases like we pay fair wages. And it makes you wonder what is a fair wage? Is that the minimum wage? Is that a livable wage? Is there something in between? So we're the first brand to put a number to the page and say, this is what our workers, in fact, we disclose the lowest paid workers at a given factory. This is what our workers are making so that we can start that conversation. You know, we don't have a ton of leverage to influence wages at this point. We can selectively choose which factories to work with and which ones to not. But we are hoping to move that conversation forward and start to add some transparency in an otherwise real, real, really opaque industry. So that's on the ESG side of things. There's various sustainability initiatives we have. We carbon offset shipments. Our packaging is algae ink, which is carbon negative as opposed to petroleum-based things. We um, 
our 1% for the planet member. We use recycled synthetics to the extent possible, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We basically do everything in our power to mitigate our footprint um, on the environment. Um, and then the other, I guess, value that we're trying to provide to consumers or the differentiator, I guess, in the activer space specifically is for me, I'm a sufficiently washed up athlete. There's a lot of intensity in the activewear space. So for me, again, my North Star being an activewear brand that I holistically love in the absence of one that existed, I would appreciate a little bit more of a realistic approach to what working out and staying active looks like at this point in my life, which currently involves, you know, myself. I, I run as much for mental health as physical health. I play recreational soccer. Uh, because it's, and so we're trying to be a little bit more comedic, irreverent, and laid back in our tone and personality relative to the other, you know, otherwise pretty intense uh, slogans and, you know, advertisements that existing brands put out. How did you go about finding those factories that you work with? I mean, what was that process like? How did you even where did you even go to start, you know, looking for places that would be offering wages that would be, um, you know, I guess you could say uh, above board in some way, or at least better than the current, you know, standard that's been set by these larger companies. Yeah. So we leverage, we, we leverage the existing relationships of a lot of our constituents. So that involves our current fashion designers. Our current fashion designers come from Under Armour, Lululemon, Ralph Lauren. They've been in the industry. They're about 35 years old. They've been in the industry long enough where they have their own relationships with factories from working at these brands prior to working with Fox and Robin. So they knew which factories they liked working with, which ones were in their mind well-run and ethical and willing to be transparent with us. Um, so there's a whole host of factories that kind of went into the consideration of where to find our factories. Additionally, we have a third-party auditor that has been in Southeast Asia for the better part of 30 years, and they have a lot of relationships and they have offices on the ground in China, in Vietnam, and places that we're currently sourcing from. Um, so they're able to help source factories as well. Um, so it's kind of a team effort in regards to finding an appropriate cut and sew factory for a given garment. Um, and there's a lot of considerations that go into that. But yeah, I would say spark notes would be we, we leverage the strength of relationships that our, our team and constituents that we work with uh, already have. And from a company progress standpoint, I, I guess, you know, can consumers now product is out in the market, consumers are purchasing, you're fully, you know, you're fully up and running from an e-commerce perspective. Um, would love to hear just kind of where the company is at today in its life cycle. Yep. So we're kind of at this experimental growth phase. We publicly launched in August of last year since that. And then we were in zero retailers. We're now in 55 retailers. So we've been expanding into both D2C and retailer and physical presence. So we're relatively omni-channel at this point. It's somewhat 50-50. Um, we don't do a ton of paid ads. So we've been growing just organically word of mouth on the D2C side of things. And again, on the retailer front, we're starting to get into yoga studios and running stores and, and higher end boutiques throughout the country. Um, and to that end of being in the experimental growth phase, there's some things like in-person events, for example, that we want to lean into. There's also additional hires. My background is investment banking, like I mentioned. So the one area our team is lacking is in a marketing and branding, which at the end of the day, the competitive mode is going to be brand, which involves, you know, company ethos, personality, product, price point. It involves everything and just generally how the customer feels about the brand. But um, to that end, we're going to, you know, we're, we're currently raising a pre-seed round. And we're going to use some of that portion of funds to hire a chief branding officer, another portion to expand our product offerings, 
um, and another portion to um, further supplement our experimentation in, in, in this growth phase. That decision to do both direct to consumer and, uh, you know, I guess be omnichannel. Um, how did you come to that decision? I guess out of the gate. I mean, there's been, I think the last eight years, 10 years have been this, you know, case study of the direct to consumer uh, channel and, and, you know, the bonobos of the world, the Warby Parker of the world. Like that was what they were doing out of the gate. And people thought it was this, you know, vast business model expansion, uh, only to see them all eventually adapt some type of omnichannel presence. So for you guys taking that route, route right out of the get-go, was that just having those learnings from other brands that have been launched in the last 10 years? Is that how you kind of use that and applied that to what you're doing? Or how did you arrive at that decision, I guess? Yeah, it was a combination of independent research, uh, advisory board members that you know, we have one advisory board member that was with Outdoor Voices since its founding days. Um, we also just from personal experience of whether that was an influencer that posted about us are um, talking to private equity associates that had portfolio companies that were direct competitors in the D2C space and already kind of went down that route of investing very heavily in the D2C side of their business. Um there's multiple considerations on that front. Um, you know, I'll just say, if you're going to go D to C, how do you acquire customers? The stereotypical way is paid ads. The general state of the paid ad market is a little uh, funky right now between the iOS 14 updates. Um, also, also um, there are a lot of companies being subsidized by VCs to that are inflating the cost to acquire a customer on these, you know, kind of more traditional channels. So as opposed to also consider, you know, the, from the Outdoor Voices guy, what, something he mentioned is that the customer profile of someone that purchases from an Instagram ad tends to be a little bit more of a shopaholic, impulse consumer, um, someone that's more likely to return items, someone that's less likely to repeat purchase. They're basically just a less ideal consumer that you would want to acquire um, relative to the word of mouth, you know, customers, the customers you acquire ver uh, via earned media and more organically. And then also similarly, it's somewhat unique for Fox and Robin, but we benefit from the in-person experiences given our product quality. I'll, obviously I'm a little biased, but our stuff is pretty nice, especially for our price point relative to our competitors. So as a random brand that pretty much no one's ever heard of, we really do benefit from those in-person experiences that retailers are able to provide where their customers are able to feel, try on our products relative to, you know, we're sitting on shelves right next to Lululemon, Viore, Nike, et cetera. Um, so we've had a lot of success with those channels and we're able to profitably acquire customers from, you know, the initial purchase as opposed to the DTC side of things, the initial purchase is typically unprofitable. And then the hope is that they repeat purchase and, um, it eventually goes profitable, but, um, but yeah, so that's our, that's our current strategy. Tommy, I've got right. a quick question on the product here. Um, so you originally started out with men's athleisure, slowly shifted into women's wear, just launched a hat. What's next on the product roadmap and, and how are you thinking about bringing new products to Fox and Robin? Yeah. At a very high level, we want to be a brand that supports a you do you mentality in regards to working out and staying active. And to that end, we're trying to develop best in class products per category, whether that's swimming or running or playing tennis, playing golf. Um, to that end, some of our new products that we're going to be offering, we have 
uh, golf polo. We have some golf attire for both men and women. We have a tennis dress for women. Um, and we have some more cross country focused uh, products as opposed to right now we have a lot of uh, products for casual runners like myself. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to be launching a lot of new products in the next 12 months um, versus our current offering. And then you mentioned a pre-seed round of fundraising. Tommy would love to hear about the strategy for that. What type of you know VCs, if, if VCs is the way you're going, um, and just kind of your your fundraising sort of um, you know ammo moving forward. Yeah, I would say we're targeting more angel investors. Actually, um, we're not necessarily opposed to VCs at this route, um, but in my experience, we've had one more success with angels. And two, I think our stage is a little bit more appropriate for, um, you know, angel investors um, and our general strategy. I mean, you know, I've been kind of working through that right now. And even before this podcast, I was reaching out to people. I have noticed we've had more success reaching out to younger professionals. Um, they tend to the ESG message tends to resonate with them a little bit more than the older generations. Again, that's obviously a stereotype. There's exceptions to that rule. But in my experience, it, we've had a lot more success. Um, a lot of our existing customer base, or sorry, investor base is um, former coworkers, former colleagues um, from my finance days. Um, we recently just had the co-founder of AppNexus, uh, which sold to AT&T for over a billion invest. Um, we just had an a NBA agent invest. So we've um, you know, higher net worth individuals that have an appetite for angel investing and have a special appreciation for our, you know, ESG focus. I just want to make a note here. Uh, you know, I remember when you guys launched, there was, you know, a ton of, I saw advertising going up on, you know, my Instagram feed. I, I saw some, you know, familiar faces from Notre Dame on the modeling side of things. And I don't know. I think my invitation to be a model for Fox and Robin got lost somewhere in the Instagram <laughs> DM world. I, is that, is that the case, Tommy, or did I just completely, you know, miss, miss the invite on that one? That's funny. So our general strategy with Instagram models has been school to school, basically where we don't have a presence. So we now have a presence with Notre Dame. Apologies for the, the lack of invite for the Notre Dame shoot. But we, we did a Notre Dame shoot, you know, basically with eclectic groups of, of people at the university we then went to Stanford and we got really well-liked, a mix of really well-liked athletes and a really, really well-mixed, uh, we'll call them NARPs, you know, and we just put them in a photo shoot. And now we have a pretty big presence at Stanford because they all shared the post on their social accounts. And then we did the same thing at Columbia and other, you know, basically big sports uh, colleges. Um, so we've been kind of grassroots organically doing that, you know, th those photo shoots um, somewhat strategically. And I'm very intentional about models. Honestly, I usually will ask, because usually I don't know the, the models at a given college at this point, I'll ask a mutual friend. I'm like, okay, at Columbia, who are the most well-liked athletes? Who are the most well-liked NARPs? Um, and they'll have them model. It doesn't really matter what they look like. I just want them to be funny and on brand. And I think one of the closing questions I kind of have about you guys and your strategies with, you know, the, the change in NIL laws, is that something that is a huge opportunity for you guys just because of the strategy you're going about and, you know, the message behind the brand and just, I guess, the origin story as well? Is that something you guys have thought about? Yeah, I, it, it's definitely something we've thought about. I would say right now we don't have the resources to adequately attack 
that route right now. I would say we more view college athletes as a branding mechanism to the point where we'll highlight them in our social media accounts. They'll share, um, you know, that post with their followers, which often is other athletes at their colleges. Um, so we do it from a credentializing and, and branding standpoint, more so than a driving sales standpoint, if that makes sense at this given moment that likely will evolve over the course of the next couple of years, depending on how things shake out. I think another interesting channel that you've taken advantage of, at least me personally looking through Instagram and other social media is through bachelorette and bachelor candidates actually wearing your product. And that expands the, the range to a lot of different people, which I think is, is cool, but selfishly I have a question about co-branding and uh, if you're in the market for a, a Chicago capital Fox and Robin co-branded hat, or something like that, where we're happy to, to hop on board with that. We very recently now have the ability to co-brand. So absolutely, we can, if anyone listening to this podcast wants to co-brand with us, we now have that capability. So definitely reach out. That's I mean, great. I'll have to think about it. Like if you guys do a U Chicago push and, you know, you want a recent, you know, graduate student to, to be a model for the U Chicago line. I'll consider Chicago Capital co-brand. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> we'll bring someone to the negotiating table here. No, All right, just perfect. kidding. All right, <laughs> we we'll, would love we'll, it. Uh, we'll, we'll break into the U Chicago crowd with you and uh, beautiful you did a co-branding partnership with Harvard Business School. So, all right, all right. Next stop, U Chicago. Let's do Next it. Next stop, U Chicago. <laughs> um, no, Tavi, we want to thank you so much for hopping on the show. Uh, this has been awesome. Uh, I think we're both really excited about about what you all are building. And you know, if people want to find out more about Fox and Robin, and you know, they want to reach out to you either from a you know an investing standpoint or purely co branding, where should they go to find more information about you? Where should they go to contact you? Yeah, if you want to contact me, my email is Tommy at foxandrobin.com. If they want to buy anything, it's, you know, or just learn more about the company, I would encourage them whether to go to our social media accounts, which are all at Fox and Robin, or our website, which is foxandrobin.com. Awesome. Tommy, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. Pleasure to have you here. Can't wait to have you back and can't wait to get some swag. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me.